This is a part about Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a genetic progressive disease mainly affecting boys. Every year, 10 boys in Sweden are born with Duchenne. The earlier you find out, the better the prognosis. And today we're in Copenhagen in Denmark at the International Congress of the World Muscle Society. And I have two delegates and researchers here that are visiting the conference. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm Luca Bello and I work in Padova as a neurologist and I've always been interested since my earlier career uh, in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, both following the patients in the clinic and also doing some research about the clinical aspects of the disease, so outcomes and trials, but also about, about some of the pathogenesis and some of the genetic aspects of this disease. I'm happy to be here. I'm Annemieke Aartsma-Rus. I'm a professor at the Leiden University Medical Center, and I've been working on Duchenne therapy development for the past 20 years. And because the therapy I'm working on is uh, mutation-specific, um, that means I've also been involved in diagnosis and the different genetic mutations for almost 20 years. Welcome to the pod. Why is this conference important? What do you say? Well, the World Muscle Society has been a mainstay in uh, our uh, scientific and clinical environment in the last, I guess, more than 20 years. I've been a <laughs> more recent <laughs> addition to the picture. And uh, most of the most prominent experts are at this meeting and you can have really the cutting edge news about therapies especially. We've seen in this conference, but also in other conferences, that there have been more and more about treatments because of the therapeutic renaissance that is going on across many of these neuromuscular disorders and Duchenne muscular dystrophy has been one of the main ones. So it's, if you I have, have to say to one here. thing, <laughs> it's about hearing about the new treatment approaches. Yeah, I think well, I, will, I will second that. And it's also, say, the, the, the yearly reunion of people working on muscle diseases, the researchers, the clinicians, uh, the people from company now more and more because I mean, they're also part of the of the development. Um, so it's 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 you hear the news, but it's also good to to uh, to network with, with all these people and to start new collaborations, perhaps. What do you expect or hope for from this year's event? Anything special? Um, well, I think this year there's, so sometimes there's Duchenne clinical trials where they will present results. I think this year that's not the case. Um, so, I mean, that's, well, that's less exciting. Um, but I think there's, there's new trial results that will be presented for another muscular dystrophy. So that, that will be interesting for me, at least. And for you? Connecting to many people we collaborate with, we hear each other, write to each other, but seeing each other every once in a while is nice and getting back also that human part of scientific <laughs> collaboration that's so important to drive our motivation every day. And to meet in, uh, yes, in real course. life. Yes. <laughs> because sometimes you've been emailing with people for nine months and then you meet them. But yeah. When did you look at, uh, start working with Duchenne muscular dystrophy? So actually as a medical student around 2005, that's when I first met Duchenne patients. And I mean, with this question, it makes me think about how much my uh, feelings have changed approaching a room where a Duchenne <laughs> family comes in and or a Duchenne adult patient comes in. Because 
uh, in the beginning, th there was much more of a hopeless environment and general karma about the disease. Now with so many treatments going on and also with the knowledge that some of the things that the community has done in the last 20 years to prolong life, improve quality of life, we really, there is a feeling of doing something important and useful, both at the moment and also for the future outlook of giving really uh, effective treatments, which is what is not there yet and we hope for the future. Well, if I think back to 2005, maybe it, it was starting already, but uh, it was much less felt. And that's a nice thing to, <laughs> to think. Do you also feel more hopefulness? Yeah, so I think so. When I started, um, what they said was the average age of Duchenne patients was maybe 20. And now what you see is that the average age um, where patients die is 30. And we know that it's probably going to increase even more because meanwhile, the, the, the care guidelines have, have been improved. So I think with care, there's a lot of improvement already, um, but also new therapy have developed because I think like 15 years ago, um, the session where everyone was looking forward to was when therapies were tested in animal models. And now that's the, say, the less appealing talks. Now people are waiting for the, 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 the talks about people testing things in clinical trials in patients. So we've definitely advanced and I think there's still a lot to be done. But if you look back 10, 20 years, then there's been a lot of progress made, both with regards to care and also with therapy development. What countries are ahead in terms of research? I think it's really an international game at the moment. Um, so there's different therapeutic approaches that are pioneered by different people around the world. But I think because it's a rare disease, people are uh, collaborating generally. Um, so usually it's not one country or one group. It's generally a collaborative effort. And you second that? Absolutely, yes. Research has become really collaborative, both at an international level, both for the preclinical and the clinical part. It's also important to stress that the nature of a rare disease is such that no center in itself, even the most advanced and excellent, can deliver care by itself or improve care by itself. It has to uh, liaise with other centers across countries and within countries to produce good science because there are just not enough patients in a rare disease to run a good clinical trial or have a pull through a good research idea with just one center. So re uh, collaboration is mandatory. Is this feeling of, of collaboration and hopefulness something that the patients also feel and the difference that has yeah, I think I think I mean it, it, I think it goes up and down. So of course, not all clinical trials are successful, um, and you can see, you can feel that when trials fail, that I mean the the, the, the hopefulness goes down, and um, uh, and you can see that when there's success, that it goes up. So it it, it fluctuates. Um, but I think again, if you compare it to 20 years ago or 15 years ago, where basically the story was well look after him well and probably your son won't live until he's 20 to now well prepare him for life because he will probably be part of society and, and have an active role there i think that that's of course a very different message even aside from a therapy and we have to recognize a tremendous and very active role of the duchenne parent community and patient community 
in the last more than 20 years, I guess, on both sides of the ocean to uh, foster science, uh, encourage science, support science uh, with funds, with ideas. And uh, right now, I think Duchenne is a model among rare neuromuscular diseases for the active role of patient associations in research. They are important in yeah. their role. Yeah. Yeah. And also, so it's indeed they, they can communicate or they can fund therapies, they can fund research, they can help small companies with, with doing their, their trials. Um, but also the communication to the patients, I think, is they have an important role. And also then again, if if at some point your therapy seems successful in a clinical trial, it needs to go to the regulators. And again, there the patients play play an important role as well. So I think that the, the Duchenne field is blessed by very active uh, parents um, who are also, I mean, they, they under, some of them understand the science and really play a very active and proactive role. And I'm also thinking since it is a, a small community or so, it, it will have an impact if it is successful or not, the trials. Yeah. So the communication is important. Exactly. And to, to yeah. And also, I mean, it's it's also say damage control is maybe too much. But of course, if people hope that something is successful and it then is not successful, I mean, for 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 people where there's no other therapeutic option, to have a, a trial fail is a major impact. So you you need to you need to do that well because I mean, pa- patients parents will have so many questions, so they they need to communicate that well. And they, they, they're helping that with that. Yeah. Do you feel a responsibility in your work also? Well, I guess any choice that we make is going to, at some level, determine if an effective cure is nearer or more far off. And we know that we are being watched. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. And so also, I mean, responsibility, but also motivation, because, I mean, you can help these people that have no other alternative. So it's, it's, it's very rewarding to be able to do little things and sometimes even explaining why something doesn't work or how things work. Even that sometimes helps them already. And I think that that's that's motivating and rewarding. And of course, we're both very aware that time is of the essence because with time, patients lose function. So you know that if you wait a year, that all these patients will have lost a function that's important to them irreversibly. Can you tell us about your research, Annemieke? Um, so my research is mainly focused on axon skipping. And axon skipping is an approach that tries to have Duchenne patients make... Um, so Duchenne patients miss the dystrophin protein. And um, there's a less severe disease called Becker muscular dystrophy. And these patients have dystrophins that are partially functional. So what the axon skipping therapy aims to do is to have Duchenne patients make these Becker-like proteins. So that's they hopefully then have a less severe disease progression. Can you tell us about your research, Luca? I've been interested in the huge variation that we observe sometimes in the phenotypic manifestations of the disease. I mean, how severe the disease is in one patient in respect to another one. And that can be quite striking sometimes. So uh, in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, there is a common biochemical problem, which is not having the dystrophin protein, it's not there, it should be 0% of the normal value. And even with this same kind of problem, uh, 
different patients exhibit a different severity in their disease. They could be weaker or start losing uh, some of their uh, motor functions sooner. And we really don't have a simple reason to explain this. And so uh, what I've done in collaboration with also other uh, natural history uh, study groups is to try and understand if some specific factors can allow us to predict this clinical course. And that could be relevant because it can give better counseling to patients and to parents if you know they're going to be more severe. Or you could identify some molecular or other kinds of factors that allow you to think of some treatments because if something modulates disease severity, it could be the trigger for a therapy. And these could be different kinds of dystrophin gene mutations that sometimes have a weird behavior that goes outside the predicted path or some variants in other genes which we call genetic modifiers and also you have to take into account all the treatments that we already give like glucocorticoids which are effective oral drugs that are now prescribed in Duchenne and so trying to tease out all the complexity of interaction of all these factors is what I've been interested in. And as I have understood there is a big, huge variation in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And you as experts, do you have any idea why that is such a variation? I think when we, well, I think there is variation, but even the, say the, the, the mildest Duchenne is still, has, still has a severe disease. Um, so I think we, we have to, to bear that in mind. So yes, there's variation, but Generally, it's a very severe disease. We know that some Duchenne patients make minute amounts of dystrophin um, because they themselves find molecular ways to, to, to make a little bit. They have generally a less severe disease progression than those that don't make any dystrophin at all. Um, and then there's the genetic modifiers that, that Luca was talking about um, that can also influence, for instance, when patients lose ambulation. And it generally has to do with how strong an inflammatory response a patient can have. And if the inflammatory response is very strong, then that will have a negative impact. There will be more muscle damage and the whole progression will be, will be quicker. So probably these things, but probably what we know is a small percentage of what we don't know because there's a lot that we don't understand about this. Yes, I agree that the huge variation has to be put into perspective because variation is observed in pretty much all neuromuscular disorders and many, I guess, or, or all genetic disorders in general. And it appears uh, relatively large because we really don't know why that is because because all the patients have no dystrophin, so it's not explained by their main pathogenetic mutation. So you have to look into other things. So that's why for us it looks large, because it's an interesting research and scientific question. So maybe that's a better explanation. Two years in a row, you have been elected as the most influential scientist in the field of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, Anumeke. And you have published over 140 scientific publications. What drives you? Well, I think so. I think what helps is that I see also things that are needed. So sometimes I'm working on a paper and I want to cite a paper that's not there. So then at some point I thought, well, if these papers are not there and I want to cite them, then probably other people need them as well. 
So I might as well just write them myself. I think that that helps. Um, and I think also because, again, because we're collaborating a lot, um, sometimes you just need one champion who says this needs to be done and then get it done. And sometimes I am that person. So that that, that helps as well. Um, but I think what, what drives me most at whenever I go to a patient conference and you see the parents, you see the patients, I mean, that's, I mean, if that doesn't drive you, then, then what does? Because, I mean, you see the need. And also, so the first time I went to a conference, I thought, well, these patients, they will be so sad. But no, they're not sad. They're just young, young boys. And they're, 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 they're having wheelchair races and they're, they're happy. And I think because they have a severe disease, but despite that, they're happy. They focus on what they can do rather than what they can't do. They're probably in my mind, even more deserving of people working to, to get them a therapy than if they would be sad, which, I mean, would be justified, but they're not. What are the major challenges in genetics and Duchenne muscular dystrophy? I think, well, the genetics of Duchenne is quite complicated. Um, and so we've, we've been doing uh, masterclasses now for a couple of years, and this is for neurologists. So this is people that see Duchenne patients. And every year I have my famous genetics quiz and hardly anyone manages to do this without mistakes. Of course, there's some trick questions in there, um, but it's also to make people aware how complicated the genetics are. And the problem with these complications are sometimes it leads to really uh, devastating results. Um, because I already explained there's Duchenne and there's Becker, the less severe form. And there have been patients diagnosed with having Becker while actually they had Duchenne. And so then you're told, well, you have the milder form of the disease. And then well, later, well, actually, and of course, I mean, that's that's a big blow. But the other thing, the other way around has happened as well. And then you think, well, but then the family should be happy. They have the less severe disease. But if that family already moved from their dream house to a level house because they were told, well, you, your son is going to need a wheelchair, is going to need this, that. They sold their car. They, they went for the, for the wheelchair car. And then they're told, well, actually, that the progression is going to be different. That's also a major impact. So... There needs to be awareness with the neurologists that if they don't understand the genetics, they need to ask the experts because giving the wrong diagnosis is, is, is really, it's, it, the impact to the family is, is really too big. It's big anyway, but if you give the wrong one, it's even bigger. Have you seen the quiz? I have seen the quiz, yes. Have you it's done really the quiz? Hard. It's really hard. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying anything about the results, not even under, not even under torture. <laughs> if I say I got it right, I would sound uh, <laughs> like I was um, bragging. And if I say I got it wrong, that's not really nice to say on, no. on tape. But I think <laughs> the, the, the point of the quiz is not so much to show people that it's not so much to test people and to say, look, you don't understand. It's to make them aware that they don't understand. Because many people don't realize until they take that quiz that they don't really understand the genetics. And when they do then see that they don't understand, they will consult with the clinical geneticists and avoid the problems that I just outlined. So it's more an awareness quiz than... So you're not supposed to get everything right. That's probably that. Why is it important with genetic testing? So the genetic testing is important for several reasons. So once you know the genetic mutation, you can do family planning because then you can see whether the mother is a carrier. Um, and if the mother is a carrier, maybe her sisters are also carriers, um, maybe cousins, nieces. Uh, uh, 
so you can do the family planning. Um, another thing is that when you have the genetic diagnosis confirmed, you can start with the care um, and the management. And if, if you don't know for sure that it's Duchenne, uh, some parts of the management may be detrimental to diseases that look like Duchenne but aren't Duchenne. Um, and finally, there's now also uh, mutation-specific uh, therapy options um, and for that, it's important to know the genetic mutations because then you know whether a patient is eligible to that or not. Do you see any obstacles with genetic testings? For example, that the results sometimes are difficult to read or interpret? Yeah, so sometimes the results are difficult to interpret. And then also, so there's two types of mutations, globally speaking. So you can have um, a large part missing or duplicated, and those mutations are easy to pick up because major chunks are missing or double. Um, but there's also small mutations. So that means that in one of the little pieces of the gene, something is, is wrong. And those are much more difficult to pick up. So usually what happens is that the 75% of the patients that have these large mutations, they get picked up easily everywhere in the world. Most people can do this. But then if they don't find anything... In some countries, they will then look for the smaller mutations, but in some countries, they won't. And if they don't, um, then that means that patients that have these mutations, this is one in four patients that have these mutations, um, they then can't offer the, the family planning um, for the care. They can say, well, it's probably Duchenne, um, but we're not sure. Um, and also for the, uh, the mutation-specific therapies, the, one of them is for the small mutations, so... A patient might be eligible for a therapy, but not know he has the eligible mutation. What do you think? Well, I second all of that. And it's important also to think about uh, less resource-intensive environments, <laughs> countries that do not have easy access to some of these um, uh, analysis that lead to DMD diagnosis. But now the cost uh, of gene sequencing is really going down and access to technologies of this kind is improving a lot. So uh, I think that very early in uh, DMD diagnosis should be available across pretty much all countries. And while well, access to therapies could be harder and is a more complex picture. Can new technology be used uh, to improve the testing or interpret them? I think so there's new so there's new technology and of course so we can do whole exome sequencing we can do whole genome sequencing even um, and that would make say a two-step process into a one-step process so you will then probably find mutations in almost everyone um, for now in most countries it's economically better to first look for the, the, the majority of mutation and then look for, the, for the, the, the minority of mutations. But in the future, when these genetic tests become cheaper, that's probably what, 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 we'll, what we'll go for. Another note is that these advancements in genetics have already helped the patients because once upon a time, patients always had to take a muscle biopsy, which is somewhat traumatic. Kids usually do it with a sedation, so they don't really remember it. But still, it's a, a scar that they have to bear, and it's an invasive procedure that also hard on them and on their parents. And in, in order to reach the diagnosis, this is no longer necessary. It still has a 
great value as uh, uh, a diagnostic test in some specific uh, contexts. For example, when differentiating between the severe Duchenne and the mild Becker form is not that easy or simple, and it can be very helpful for uh, testing the effect of those drugs that aim to restore dystrophin. But uh, it's not needed anymore for diagnosis because genetics have gotten better. And then maybe one thing that people don't realize is that because <clears throat> there's now so many technical advances, um, there's also labs that just do random exome sequencing or, or uh, uh, whole genome uh, screening. They sometimes pick up Duchenne mutations, but they're not an expert um, diagnostic center. So they sometimes misinterpret the results and that again leads to the problems that because it's quite complex, if you're not an expert, if you don't know all about all the buts and the ifs and the whats, um, it's easy to make the wrong conclusions. And then again, that, that, that leads to, to problems. Um, so ideally, you should also, if you have such a lab, you should consult with, with the, the, the clinical geneticist experts. The ideal picture is when a clinician who has seen a lot of DMD patients talks to a geneticist who has analyzed a lot of DMD genes and they talk to each other and communicate. And in the best labs, this happens automatically because in reports, they include uh, already the answers to the most uh, frequently asked questions that the clinicians would ask them. And they also double check all mutations and they provide a report that's informative, not only describes the mutation, but also leads the clinician to the conclusions, to the clinically relevant conclusions. And I also heard about a website connected to your university, I think. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there's actually there's, there's two um, two tools at the, at the Leiden uh, uh, University Medical Center. So one is a big database of mutations that have been reported by uh, clinical geneticists, but also in, in papers, in, in publications, um, where it will just say oh, this mutation was found this many times, and in this many times it resulted in Duchenne, in this many times it resulted in Becker. So basic information is about these mutations. And then when people who are less familiar with the disease, they can check this, this, this database and see, okay, this... I, I would expect this to be a Duchenne. And indeed, in 99 out of 100 cases, this is a Duchenne. And there's also another tool that's called DAF. Um, and there you can just, it's very easy. You can just click on different, um, uh, so for instance, if parts are missing, you can click the parts that are missing and it will then tell you most likely this will be this or that with interpretations and visualization. Who can use those tools? Everyone can use those tools. And even so for the DAF tool, um, even you can choose whether you're a patient or a parent or whether you're a clinician, and then it will give you different types of information, say, based on your, your level of, of expertise. This pod, Take on Duchenne, What You Need to Know About Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy, has been produced by Koma, and my name is Maria Mattel Suomalainen. The podcast has been produced with financial support from Peter C. Therapeutics. <laughs>